Back in June of 1944, a Hungarian Jewish community leader named Rudolf Kastner found himself in an impossible position. In Budapest, the Nazis were deporting hundreds of thousands of Hungarian Jews to their deaths. Rudolf Kastner was the leader of a local rescue committee that sought to save Jewish lives by smuggling them out of Nazi territory. He found himself in negotiations with the Nazi leadership, including the notorious Nazi official Adolf Eichmann, to save the lives of nearly 1,700 Jews. But the price was money, property, and Kastner's silence. He could not warn the rest of the Jewish community that their upcoming deportation meant certain death. Kastner took the deal. 1,700 Jews were put on a train that was sent to Switzerland instead of Auschwitz. Nine years later, in 1953, Kastner was living in Israel and serving as a minor official in the left-wing government. A Hungarian survivor of the Holocaust wrote a pamphlet accusing Kastner of collaboration with the Nazis in the murder of Hungarian Jewry. The Israeli government sued the survivor for libel, and the trial of the decade was off and running. It wasn't the first fight in Israel over the Holocaust. A year earlier, Jews had come to blows over whether or not to accept reparations from West Germany. Like the incident with the Altalena ship back in 1948, the controversy almost caused a civil war, as Menachem Begin vowed a fight to the death in opposition to the reparations. His archenemy, David Ben-Gurion, proceeded with negotiations for reparations that the poor country desperately needed. For a nation that was in part established on the ashes of six million victims of the Holocaust, there was little agreement in politics or society about how the Jewish state should memorialize and properly honor either the dead or the survivors. And to be honest, the Kastner trial and the reparations debate revealed an ugly side of all this that in no way helped either the Jewish people or the Jewish state heal from a profound tragedy. That's today's episode. I'm Jason Harris. Welcome back to Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. For hundreds of thousands of Holocaust survivors, living in the Jewish state could be lonely and isolating. Although it was a place to begin rebuilding their lives after so much had been lost, it wasn't a place that welcomed their traumatic memories or their unique individual struggles to carry on as survivors of genocide. Israel was a collectivist society, which was engaged in huge collective challenges. It was fighting for its life against the Arabs, trying to build a nation, develop an economy, and fend off famine and homelessness while doubling and then tripling its population in the 1950s. There was a relentless focus on tackling problems, implementing solutions, moving forward, forward, ever forward. There was little patience for recognizing or honoring the individual struggle. Instead, the individual was expected to subordinate her needs to those of the state. And when it came to the survivors themselves, native Israelis could be disdainful and disbelieving. There was a contrast between the self-identity of the native Israeli as a strong, muscular, proud Jew who fights against his enemies, with the perception, misplaced as it was, as the Holocaust victims as meek souls who went to their deaths without much resistance. 
Both of these conceptions contained elements of truth and myth, as all identities do, but survivors often perceived that native Israelis looked down on them, resented them. Why didn't you fight back, was the question often demanded of survivors if they spoke up about their experiences. And as with everyone else in the world who hasn't experienced the Holocaust, native Israelis struggled to fully comprehend what the survivors had been through, and what had been required of them to survive. So they were sometimes reluctant to fully believe their stories. And so think about it from the perspective of these survivors. They were thrust from the horrors of the Nazis into the precarious situation in the state of Israel, which was in a perpetual state of emergency. The survivors also wanted to move forward with the new Jewish state and their new Jewish society. Deeply traumatized by their experiences, many forced themselves to keep quiet about their stories, lest their losses overwhelm the effort to rebuild their lives. Not wanting to burden new spouses and new children with their suffering, survivors buried their experiences, and for the most part, their Israeli neighbors made no effort to hear them. The result was a nation filled with repressed memories and undeclared trauma, with almost no national or collective outlet for healing. It's ironic that the Jewish state failed to reckon with the Holocaust, but there was simply no time. So when the Holocaust burst onto the scene in 1952, it was quickly absorbed into the rough and unforgiving politics of the day. Instead of unifying the Jewish nation, it came this close to tearing it apart. Since independence, Israel had been desperate for the cash needed to fund the country, equip the military, and power the economy. An opportunity for a huge windfall emerged at the beginning of the 1950s, when West Germany and Israel entered into negotiations for the payment of reparations for the Holocaust. Germany had been split in two as part of the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union, the eastern half aligning with the communists and the western half aligning with the west. West Germany was emerging as a critical power in Europe against communism, and the western world was looking to boost its status. Reparations for the Nazi regime was an important step in rehabilitating West Germany's image. David Ben-Gurion, still Israel's prime minister, he was in favor of reparations. He believed he was dealing with a Germany different than the one that had murdered the Jews of Europe less than a decade earlier. And that was his phrase, a different Germany. This new Germany, he insisted, wasn't made up of Nazis, but of a new generation of leaders who were pulling the country out of its post-war devastation. Now is the time, he said, to acknowledge that the current generation of Germans shouldn't have to carry the guilt for what their parents and grandparents had done before them. And anyway, he said, given that the Nazis had looted the Jews' wealth and property, any restitution rightfully belongs to the Jews in the first place. Why should Germany get to keep that wealth? The historian Martin Gilbert quotes Ben-Gurion paraphrasing the Hebrew Bible. Let not the murderers of our people, he said, be also their inheritors. That's a reference to a verse in the first book of Kings, chapter 21, verse 19. Hast thou killed, and also taken possession. So there was also the national financial argument. The need for cash and goods was critical. If West Germany wants to supply us with money, weapons, machinery, and anything else, who are we to turn down such urgent needs? We have no choice but to accept help wherever we can get it, especially from a country that is going to emerge as the central power in Europe. Finally, Ben-Gurion made it clear that these reparations, whether in the form of cash or oil or agricultural goods, they were intended by West Germany to help Israel absorb hundreds of thousands of Holocaust survivors. 
This was in no way direct compensation for those murdered, or for those whom survived. The negotiations with West Germany persisted through 1951, and in January of 1952, Ben-Gurion presented the deal to the Knesset for ratification. And that's when Menachem Begin stepped into the fray, and all hell broke loose. It was the greatest rivalry in Israeli politics, going back well over a decade now. Menachem Begin was the leader of the political opposition, the right-wing party called Mecherut. As the opposition, Begin considered it his sacred and happy duty to oppose Ben-Gurion at every single opportunity. Ben-Gurion felt it was his right to aggressively and publicly ignore Begin. Things were so ridiculous that when Ben-Gurion wanted to refer to Begin during meetings of the Knesset, he refused to address Begin by his name, instead calling him the guy sitting next to whichever Knesset member Begin happened to be sitting next to, which is real mature. Lately, I've been using it in staff meetings, and let me tell you, it's been a big hit with my boss. Now, in the reparations agreement, Begin was not only morally outraged by Ben-Gurion's stance, but he also saw an opening to tear down the left and increase Herut's influence amongst a wider range of voters. Denouncing the agreement as blood money, Begin encouraged as much opposition in the Knesset as could be mustered. The idea that the Jewish state could be bought with German money to sully the memory of six million murdered Jews was beyond the pale for the right wing, and increasingly many on the left. Holocaust survivors were themselves divided. No one believed for a minute that these reparations weren't also an attempt at seeking forgiveness for their suffering, for which no amount of money could ever compensate. Not only would Israel not accept any reparations from West Germany, Begin insisted, but the state of Israel would never even have a relationship with Germany. Ben-Gurion can quote the Hebrew Bible, but so could Menachem Begin. He referred to the dreaded biblical tribe Amalek, which had tried to exterminate the ancient Israelites, but were instead wiped out. Begin escalated his opposition, rallying thousands of Israelis in street protests in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. On January 7, 1952, in Jerusalem's Zion Square, Begin brought a crowd of 15,000 people. This will be a war of life and death, he declared. Remember, he said, that when they fired on us with cannons, I gave the order, no. But today I give the order, yes. He was referring to the Altalena incident from 1948, the almost civil war from the third episode of this season, when Begin single-handedly prevented his Irgun forces from retaliating against the Israeli government. But this time he was saying he was going to give the order to attack. Begin marched to the Knesset to speak on the floor and thousands of his followers joined him. But the Knesset was ready. Adopting a siege mentality, Israel's parliament was ringed with barbed wire and riot police ready for an attack. Their defenses weren't strong enough. Waves of demonstrators attacked the police in a mass riot, setting cars on fire, causing total mayhem in the streets. Jews were set upon other Jews over the memory of the Holocaust. Inside the Knesset, the scene was no less chaotic, as Begin tore into Ben-Gurion and the reparations agreement. Calling Ben-Gurion a fascist and a hooligan, 
Begin gave an impassioned speech to his fellow legislators. There are things in life that are worse than death, he said. This is one of them. For this, we will give our lives. We will leave our families. We will say goodbye to our children, but there will be no negotiations with Germany. So it didn't work. The next day, Ben-Gurion declared that the riot and Begin's opposition were the first steps taken to destroy democracy in Israel. The day after that, the Knesset voted a motion of confidence, indicating that by a majority vote, they supported Ben-Gurion and by extension, his negotiations with West Germany. Menachem Begin accepted defeat and called for his supporters to stand down. Once again, he just barely managed to avert a civil war. This time, though, one that he insisted on starting. Nine months later, in September of 1952, Israel and West Germany agreed on reparations in the amount of $865 million, or somewhere north of $8 billion today. By then, however, the negotiations had turned so sour because of the opposition in Israel that the official signing ceremony, which took place in Luxembourg, lasted only 13 minutes and was held at a secret location. It was just the first of many iterations of reparations agreements with Germany, both between Israel and between survivors and other Jewish organizations. Israel agreed to pay about 15% of the German reparations to survivors who lived outside Israel, mostly in the United States. For Israel, much of the reparations came in the form of needed oil or machinery or agricultural goods, capital-intensive items that helped boost its economy at a critical time, and the Israeli public eventually came to accept the reparations deal. For many, however, it remained nothing more than blood money. A year later, the Holocaust again burst onto the Israeli scene, and again it was contentious, angry, and ultimately violent. Melchiel Grunwald, the Hungarian survivor of the Holocaust, publicly accused Rudolf Kastner of collaborating with the Nazis and complicity in the murder of hundreds of thousands of Jews. In 1944, Kastner, as leader of a Jewish rescue committee looking to smuggle Jews out of Europe, met with the notorious Adolf Eichmann, one of Hitler's top deputies, as well as other local Nazi leaders. A deal was worked out in which Kastner would be allowed to send nearly 1,700 Jews out of Hungary, sparing them from deportation to the death camps. The price was anywhere between $1,000 and $25,000 per person, bankrolled in part by wealthier Jews whom Kastner brought on board. He was accused by Grunwald and others as not only making this deal with the Nazis, but of deliberately helping the SS obfuscate the true destination of the deportations, encouraging the Jews to willingly allow themselves to be deported to a supposedly safer location. Kastner knew that was a lie. He was so focused on his plan to get the 1,700 Jews out that he sold out hundreds of thousands more, including Hannah Shenish. I told her story back in Season 2, Episode 49. Hannah Shenish was the young woman from Palestine who parachuted behind enemy lines to try to rescue Jews. She was caught in Hungary and later executed. She's one of the greatest Zionist and Israeli national heroes, a universally admired martyr in the fight for Jewish survival. Kastner was accused by her mother and one of her surviving companions of having deceived them in order to preserve the goodwill of the Nazis. The allegation was that Kastner reported their whereabouts to the Hungarian police. 
He didn't want their rescue operation to anger the Nazis to the point where they would shut down his own rescue efforts. Kastner didn't outright deny the accusation, saying only that he had his reasons. But perhaps what most angered Israelis was when it came to light that Kastner had defended several SS officers at the post-war Nuremberg trials. When they were accused of war crimes along with top Nazis, Kastner submitted testimony on their behalf. He argued that these particular SS officers weren't the murderous sort. They were more just functionaries who actually helped him to save Jewish lives. To whatever extent that may have had some truth, the idea of defending the SS was beyond what most Israelis were willing to tolerate. But in his defense, he was in an impossible position. He didn't have nearly as much power as it would seem looking back. No Jews did under the Nazis. Adolf Eichmann later admitted that he had deceived Kastner in order to reap the most value from the 1700 Jews, knowing full well the rest would be sent to their deaths, a fact which Kastner may or may not have fully realized. Kastner himself was being blackmailed because his own family was also at the mercy of the Nazis. If he didn't cooperate, they too would be murdered. And finally, says his defenders, once the Nazis took over Hungary, the Jews were doomed no matter what. The fact that he saved 1,700 Jews wasn't a sign of his collaboration. It was a sign of his heroism. That was 1,700 people who didn't go to their deaths at a time when every Jewish life mattered. My father saved tens of thousands of Jews during the Holocaust. In order to do so, he had to negotiate with the Nazis. This made him look like a traitor, as if he betrayed and sold his own people. That was his daughter, Suzanne Kastner, at a conference about his archive in 2015. So these were the arguments then laid out in a trial brought by the Israeli government against Grunewald, the Holocaust survivor. Because Kastner was an official of Mapai, the left-wing political party that ran the government, Israel sued his accuser for libel. Grunewald hired a well-known right-wing firebrand attorney associated with Menachem Begin's Herut party, the opposition. And this is how the whole thing turned political. In attacking Rudolf Kastner, the right-wing hoped to smear the left-wing establishment as the party of Nazi collaborators. In other words, what you had was the right wing and left wing in the Jewish state using the incomprehensible tragedy of the Holocaust to smash each other in the political arena. Real nice. The trial dragged on for two years. Each new moment in the trial provided an opportunity for the left and right to score political points. Finally, in 1955, the judge acquitted Grunewald, the Holocaust survivor of libel. Although he acknowledged that the temptation to try to save those few Jewish lives was understandable, Kastner, said the judge, had sold his soul to the devil by trusting and depending on the Nazis. The Israeli government appealed the verdict, but when it did that, Herut, the right-wing opposition party, brought a vote of no confidence in the Knesset against the government. One of the government's coalition partners jumped ship, the no-confidence motion passed, and all of a sudden Israel needed to find itself a new government. The Prime Minister was not actually Ben-Gurion at this time. We'll get to why that was in the next week. It was instead Moshe Sharet, a major political figure and signer of the Declaration of Independence. He was forced to resign after less than two years in office. So to sum up, 
This trial over events that took place during the Holocaust was so divisive and controversial that it brought down Israel's second prime minister barely seven years after the founding of the state. And you thought American politics was nuts. Meanwhile, the appeal of the verdict of libel against Kastner continued for another three years. In 1958, Israel's Supreme Court ruled on the case, overturning the charges brought by Malchiel Grunwald. Refusing to find fault in his actions during the war, the court judged that Kastner behaved morally, motivated only by the intention to save as many lives as he could. He couldn't be held at fault for the actions of the Nazis, nor could he be condemned for paying them off. The court did fault him for defending SS officers at Nuremberg after the war, but otherwise, the majority ruling had finally at long last, ruled in his favor. But it was too late. A year earlier, in March of 1957, three members of the Jewish terrorist organization Lehi approached Kastner outside his home in Tel Aviv. You may remember the Lehi from season two, the ultra-right-wing group of fighters who famously assassinated Lord Moyne. They had been largely broken up when Israel was established, but a few extremists still lurked around. Having waited for Kastner to arrive, the men ran up as he was getting out of his car and shot him. Critically injured, he managed to identify his attackers to the police, who were subsequently tried and convicted. And as for Kastner, he died of his injuries ten days later. <laughs> In 1953, a unique institution opened its doors in Jerusalem to commemorate, memorialize, educate, and study an event that did not take place in Israel. It was called the World Holocaust Remembrance Center, better known by its Hebrew name, Yad Vashem. Yad Vashem means a memorial and a name, a phrase taken from the book of Isaiah. Nowadays, nearly every major Jewish community around the world has some kind of memorial to the Holocaust, but in the 1950s, it wasn't yet a thing. The idea for Yad Vashem developed even before the Holocaust had ended. It became the central site for commemorating the Holocaust, recording the names of the victims, honoring those who had saved Jews, conducting research and education, and above all, preserving the memory of those who died. Today, it is a truly global institution and the second most visited place in Israel after the Western Wall. Under Israeli law, every foreign diplomat, from presidents on down, is required by Israel to visit Yad Vashem on their first official visit. So the Holocaust was a big part of Israel. But although it played an outside role in the establishment of the state, it wasn't a substitute for national identity. From the 1950 Law of Return, debates still roiled over how, exactly, to put the Jewish in the Jewish state. We'll get into that next time. You've been listening to Naomi Shemer, Hanishmot HaTacharot, The Pure Souls, Fortish Haraf, The Dudaim, and Menachem Begin himself speaking out against German reparations. You can always go to my website at jewadono.com for links to the music and more info. Thanks for listening, everyone. Lahit Raot. See you later.